You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. It's 11 o'clock at night. It's dark. You're sitting in front of the mirror getting ready for bed. There's nobody else in the house. You see something move in the corner of your eye. You glance to your right, but you don't see anything. Another minute goes by, and you think you see movement again. So you slowly turn to your left, but again, the room is empty. You turn back around, and staring you face to face in the mirror is a cat. You jump back, because you don't have a cat, and there's no cat in the room. But there he is, staring at you in the mirror. Welcome to Paranormal Pets, where you can always expect the unexpected. Each week, we'll discuss all aspects of weird or spiritual animal encounters, ghosts, totems, psychic animals, animal souls, animal angels, and animals in religion, with a little cryptozoology thrown in. Now, step into the supernatural world of pets with your Paranormal Pets ghostly host, Brandy Stark. Hello and welcome to Paranormal Pets. I am your host, Brandy Stark, and we're doing a little bit of catch-up. My college is on leave for the winter holidays, thank heavens. So because of that, I've got a little bit of a backlog of some research, so I thought we'd uh, do another reader submission. There's an article that I'd like to read about perhaps the legendary hellhound of Suffolk being discovered. And uh, then we'll actually take a look at some research that I've been doing this semester on the Middle Ages. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we return. Now, time for something really scary. A word from our sponsors. Paranormal pets will reappear before you can say Bigfoot. Don't run away. DesignerPetSweaters.com, the latest fashion trends for our furry friends. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit DesignerPetSweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. DesignerPetSweaters.com Pet Life Radio, the number one pet radio network on the planet, joins forces with iHeartRadio to put the power of your pets in your pocket. Download the iHeartRadio app and rock Pet Life Radio on your phone, on your tablet, on your Xbox, in your car. Pet talk, pet tunes, and fun pet times. Pet Life Radio and iHeartRadio. Positively possum. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Did you hear that? Our commercials have mysteriously disappeared. Paranormal Pets is back with our haunted host, our ghost host, Brandy Stark. All right, so here we are, a cold, wet, and blustery Florida. This is not natural for this state, I'm pretty sure, although it's been a very mild 
mild fall so far this year. In fact, these are temperatures that I usually equate with January, February. Uh, they're fairly early this year. So bear with because the pugs and I are not used to this. And so of course they are all around me once again. Uh, they love the paranormal pet episodes because I sit still for about 30 minutes. <laughs> that's, that's rare. And they're also doubly excited. And I think they're keeping an eye on me because there are two things that I cook. One are kumquat pies, but it's too early for kumquats. So the other thing that I actually do cook are pumpkin pies. I am not much of a cook. So this thing has a 50-50 shot of making it. If it makes it, it should be good. If it doesn't, well, anyway, if you hear this recording stop suddenly, you don't know what happened. So they love it when I cook because it doesn't happen that often. Uh, that will be the job of the potential future Mr. Stark, I'm sure. Anyway, they've had a good morning so far today. We got to sleep in, I'm cooking, and I'm catching up on paranormal pets a little bit. So we're actually going to start with a reader submission. And I'm going to get a little bit closer because I've been doing a lot of grading and my eyes are a little tired today. This comes from Terry Winberg. Uh, she is a member of the Spirits of St. Petersburg Facebook page, which is open to the public if anybody's interested in joining. And she actually wrote in response to a little meme that I posted about four days to Halloween with a cute pug on it. And she said, uh, we were talking about animals, and she said, and animal ghosts, and I have a couple of uh, books on animal ghost stories. So she posted, someday when you get some time, could you share those titles? A dog that I had for 14 years and brought down here with me from Chicago died. And after almost a year, I got a rescue dog. She was a German shepherd and very protective. She had to be sure that I was not in any danger from people getting too close. Well, one day she stared at the middle of the living room floor, then walked all the way around it as close to the wall as she could get, all of the time staring at the middle of the floor. She then climbed into my lap, still staring at the same spot. I finally got her down and she was okay and would walk through the center of the room through that spot that she was avoiding. I took her to the vet and had her eyes checked to be sure there was no problem. I told the vet that I was pretty sure she had seen my old dog, I knew she did. And then uh, she adds as, as a comment when I asked if I could use this for paranormal pets. Absolutely, you can share. Even the vet had to almost admit that she could have seen my old dog. So it's kind of interesting. So another reader submission, always fun. Uh, we always appreciate those because uh, what a lot of folks don't realize is that the paranormal is not really that scary. Oftentimes it's actually much more common and much more interactive than we realize but not in an overwhelming way. It's always these little things, I think, that make you sit there and think, did that really happen? Was that my imagination? Is it belief-based? But these little intrusions into, uh, into our lives, I guess, uh, keep us engaged. So that was her story. And Terry, thank you so much for letting me post it. I've got actually a couple more reader submissions that we'll get to, but that'll be for another episode. I do have an article that came out, and this is posted on the Ancient Origins Reconstructing the Story of Humanity's Past website, uh, which you can find at ancient-origins.net backslash news-history-archaeology backslash archaeologist-believe-found-remains-legendary-hell-hound. So there you go. This was actually put up here on the 16th of May in 2014. And this write-up is by April Holloway. And the title is, Do Canine Remains Belong to the Legendary Hellhound of Suffolk? 
And for those of you who are from the UK, I'm going to apologize because I speak like a Midwestern American. So just be aware of that. And with the next set of information, since it's coming from the Middle Ages, just keep that little asterisk of a warning with you. I fear that I have a very flat accent. So archaeologists have discovered the skeleton of a massive dog that would have stood seven feet tall on its hind legs in the ruins of Lyston Abbey in Suffolk, England, according to a recent report in The Express. The remains are near where an ancient legend spoke of a hellhound called the Black Shuck, said to have flaming red eyes and a rugged black coat, and who terrorized villagers. The name Shuck derives from the Old English word, and I think it's Shucka, meaning demon. He is one of many ghostly black dogs recorded across the British Isles. Its alleged appearance during a storm on the 4th of August, 1577, at the Holy Trinity Church, Blytheburg, is a particularly famous account of the beast, in which legend says that thunder caused the doors of the church to burst open and the snarling dog crashed in and ran through the congregation, killing a man and a boy before it fled when the steeple collapsed. The encounters on the same day of, at St. Mary's Church, uh, Bungay, or Bungay, was described in A Strange and Terrible Wonder by the Reverend Abraham Fleming in 1577. And we have talked about this uh, in the past on Paranormal Pets. But his quote is, This black dog, or the devil in such a likeness, God he knoweth all who worketh all, running all along down the body of the church with great swiftness and incredible haste, among the people in a visible form and shape, passed between two persons as they were kneeling upon their knees and occupied in prayer as it seemed, wrung the necks of them both in one instant clear backwards and so much that even the moment where they kneeled, they strangely died. Brendan Wilkins, project director of the archaeological group Dig Ventures, said most of these legends about dogs may have had some roots in reality. The remains of the massive dog which is estimated to have weighed 200 pounds, were found just a few miles from the two churches where the black shuck killed the worshippers. It appears to have been buried in a shallow grave at precisely the same time as shuck is said to have been on the loose, primarily around Suffolk and the East Anglia region. Well, that's interesting. I'm curious to know how they got that, but okay. Radiocarbon dating tests will be carried out to give an exact age of the bones, which will either serve to enhance the hellhound stories or support the far less exciting theory that it is an Abbott's old hunting dog. Regardless of the outcome, it is unlikely to change the iconography of the local area, which relies on stories of black shuck to attract curious visitors. So admittedly, if I do ever end up in that area, I am going to go and investigate and see what is there. So again, there you go. Another tie-in to something we've talked about here on Paranormal Pets. So as a preface to the next part of this show, I just want to let you all know what I have been doing in part uh, for this year. And it's, it's actually been some additional research on the Middle Ages. So I think I started to introduce this series with the last episode. I think I mentioned it, but I have been doing research on the dance macabre, memento moris, death images, folklore, and legends from the Middle Ages. Though I am a doctorate already, I'm continuing to accrue some graduate degrees and hopefully expand my knowledge. I do believe in education and I greatly enjoy it. So I'm currently working on a Master of Liberal Arts degree because, you know, I just don't have enough to do right now. But I am looking at a thesis on most likely the dance macabre 
uh, possibly utilizing the dance macabre as a form of proto-feminism because of the dance macabre de femmes. So we'll see where it goes. But this semester, I was uh, trying to kind of set up some groundwork under the guidance of a professor. And I have been reading so many books and articles on ghosts, revenants, reanimated corpses, imagery from the Middle Ages, and that... First of all, I think I want to be a medievalist. My first degrees were in classics and history and then religious studies, and I studied Greco-Roman paganism, Roman-occupied Palestine, and formative Christianity, and I've, I've always been very drawn to the ancients. I love them, and I'm sorry to see how often they are overlooked or dismissed by moderns. But the next several degrees, I actually focused on modernity. I, I moved through the humanities with females in comic books, so the role of feminism in comic books, which uh, that's an interesting topic in and of itself. And then the use of globalization uh, and liberal studies, and specifically the state of Florida, but how this actually prepares students was actually a a dissertation topic. And uh, this time, I want something from the Middle Ages. So I think this will be a nice little counterbalance. So what does this have to do with the price of beans? Well, In doing this reading, I have found a couple of rather interesting stories that I thought I would share. And uh, I'm going to kind of go through some of these resources. I don't know how many episodes we'll get from this. My guess would be two to three, because it turns out that in the Middle Ages, they, they actually did quite a bit with animals. So I'll start with this one, and then we'll probably go to some commercial messages so that I can then tell you a couple more stories from the Middle Ages. And then we will call it... A Cold, Wet, Rainy Wednesday. How's that? This is coming from a book called Medieval Folklore, A Guide to Myths, Legends, Tales, Beliefs, and Customs. Editors are Carl Lindahl, John McNamara, and John Liddell. I love this book, actually. Uh, It's 400 some odd pages. I'm right now in uh, the letter P, about 323. With any luck, I will finish it. I'm working some of this information into uh, this paper that I've been working on. But it's, uh, it's actually been a fantastic book. And I will tell you this as an aside, the more I see of modernity, the more I think we're actually going back to the Middle Ages. As a professor of both humanities and religious studies, it's my personal belief that The human story basically stays the same. It's repeated throughout time and in a basic cycle. And that has certainly, it's been proposed by others. This is nothing that original for me. But I do think the backdrop changes, that the technology and the dress and the the basic aspects of reality, the backdrop will change. But the undercurrents are certainly the same. So I find this to be just... If you ever have the time, I'm going to tell you that the medieval time period has the best ghost stories. They just really do. They totally trump anything we produce. All right, so this entry is Gunefort, Saint. So Saint, and I think it's Gunefort, Guneofort. I know that the UK kind of accents things a little bit differently. So just again, bear with. This is a greyhound celebrated in the 13th century legends and rituals near the French city of Lyons. Although the name St. Gunnefort is applied to several human figures, notably one in uh, Pavia, Italy, it is the dog that has become the focus of folkloric interest because its story and cult were unusually well documented and have been studied at length by Jean-Claude Schmidt, who is actually one of my 
other resources. So he is um, kind of a pivotal scholar for the Middle Ages. The legend and cult of the Greyhound came to ecclesiastical attention through Stephen of Bourbon, 1182-1261, a Dominican friar attached to the Covenant of Lyons, whose descriptions are recorded in a treatise left unfinished at his death. Stephen heard about the legend and testimony concerning the cult about 1250 in the course of preaching against sorcery and hearing confessions in the diocese of Lyons. Most women confessed that they had taken their children to St. Gunnefort. They related this legend about the holy dog. The greyhound Gunnefort belonged to a lord and lady who one day left their baby boy in the care of a nurse. When the nurse left the baby unattended, a huge serpent entered the house. The faithful greyhound killed the serpent and tossed its body a safe distance from the infant. But when the nurse returned to the house to find the cradle upset and cradle and dog covered with blood, she shrieked. The Lord entered and instinctively slew the dog with his sword before finding the baby unharmed. The narrative of this faithful dog is a widespread exemplum and legend type classified as B331.2 and Stith Thompson's Motif Index. The tale is recorded in no fewer than 11 Latin versions written throughout the late Middle Ages and in many more recent accounts. Perhaps the most famous variant is the story from which Thompson takes his title, Llewellyn and His Dog, in which a Welsh prince kills his faithful dog, Gellert, before discovering that the hound has saved his child from a snake. Although the earliest recorded Gellert narrative dates to only 1800, a manuscript illumination dated 1484 pictures the Prince of Wales in a helmet surrounded by a cradle in which a greyhound stands. This iconographic flourish, unique in medieval her uh, heraldry, is taken as evidence that the story of Llewellyn and his dog was well established in Britain by the end of the Middle Ages. The French version, however, is of a particular interest because it bears evidence of oral circulation among peasant populations. Unlike the numerous elite versions of the Exempla collections, the folk story recorded by Stephen has no appended moral. It is also the most economical account, mentioning, for example, one female servant assigned to the infant instead of two or three women mentioned in the Exemplum accounts. Schmidt interprets this narrative economy both as an indication of a tale streamlined through the process of oral narration and as an indication of a peasant's view of a noble household in which one servant is more than enough to mind the manor. The importance of Stephen's narrative extends well beyond its possible indications of peasant narrative style because the friar proceeds to contextualize the legend by explaining how village women used it as a justification for their healing rituals. His account continues. Discovering the loyalty of the dog, the people of the household threw it in a well near the manor house, heaped stones upon the grave, and planted trees nearby. After the manor fell to abandon, peasants, preserving the memory of the dog's heroics, began to honor it as a martyr. They made the grove and grave the site of a ritual in which mothers would take their ailing infants. Under the guidance of an old woman, they brought offerings of salt and other things to the grove, removed their baby swaddling clothes, and hung them on the bushes, drove nails into the grove's trees, and passed their naked babies between the two trees. The mother would toss the child nine times between the two trees into the arms of an old woman, invoking the fawns of the forest, i.e. the spirits of the woods, to take the ailing child and to replace it with a healthy one. Then the child was placed naked on a bed of straw between two lit candles and left alone. If the child was alive and the mother returned, she plunged it nine times into the water of a nearby river, which action was supposed to ensure that the child would be healthy. Ooh, that was brutal, actually. That's pretty tough. So, and I guess if the child survived all that, then it really must have been healthy. 
Although I also wonder if perhaps uh, getting it out of the household and even bathed through the plunging of the water uh, might have been something that helped. There are accounts that say that during the Middle Ages, people did use the hearth fire as a central location. The kitchen, essentially, the hearth fire was the central location of the household. But households were often, I think uh, the average size was something like 20 feet by 10 feet. They weren't very big. And even though you had a burning fire in the center of the room, you didn't have a chimney. So the smoke would be stagnant and would actually linger in the house. And so, you know, when you look at some of the practices, perhaps putting the child outside, maybe airing it out and allowing it to catch its breath and some clean air, and then the river, I'm going to hope it's just dipping and not plunging, you know, might have been a true aid in this case. Anyhow. The rest of the article says, this complex ritual contains many elements, such as purification by fire and water, that have been documented not only in the Middle Ages, but among many French peasantry into relatively recent times. The significance of the trees as agents in the healing process, for example, evokes a religious practice documented in the region of Gunnifer Colt in 1158. A shrine containing the relics of St. Terenus, when set at the foot of an oak tree, instantly cured a paralytic. The tale and the ritual read together offer unusually rich testimony of a living legend complex through which peasants use narratives to explain their ritual activities. The ritual itself reflects a belief in changelings, the alien infant or the ailing infants brought to Guinefords Grove were apparently believed to be not human children, but spirit children that had been substituted for babies. The ritual was designed to induce the spirits to take back the substitute children and to return the human babies. As an Orthodox churchman, Stephen regarded this cult practice as misguided and demonic. His account emphasizes that had he had the remains of the dog disinterred and the grove destroyed by fire. As Schmidt points out, Stephen's response is patterned according to a major topos in ecclesiastical folklore, a narrative pattern in which the holy man visits the site of the cult and debunks the central cult figure. Both the peasant woman and Stephen of Bourbon could thus be said to be acting according to ostentation, the process through which people use legend as a script for their own actions. The woman used the story of the greyhound and Stephen used saints' lives to inspire and guide their own activities. This is by Carl Lindahl, who wrote this particular article. So I'm going to actually give my tongue a break because that is harder to do than you think. And we're going to go to some commercial messages. And when we get back, I will do one more entry and then we'll call this an episode. We'll be right back after these messages. Now time for something really scary. A word from our sponsors. Paranormal pets will reappear before you can say Bigfoot. Don't run away. Hi, this is Tim Link, animal communicator and pet expert and host of Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have you ever wanted to know what your pet is really thinking? Do you want to find out if they truly understand what you're trying to tell them? Ever wish you could build a better understanding and closer relationship with your pet? Well, now you can. Learning to communicate with animals is a four-part on-demand workshop. In the workshop, you'll learn the essential techniques that are necessary to communicate with animals, including what is animal communication, breathing correctly to achieve the perfect state to communicate with your animals at a deeper level, using guided meditation exercises and method to communicate with animals, and how to send and receive information from your animals. So if you're wanting to learn how to communicate and connect with your animals at a deeper level, visit PetLifeRadio.com forward slash workshop and purchase and download Learning to Communicate with Animals. You'll be glad you did. 
My name is Brent Atwater. I'm considered the world's authority on animal afterlife, animal life after death, and pet reincarnation. And that's sort of a good thing because there are a lot of people out there who secretly want to know about this, who are in their hearts believe this, and who have questions. And one of the things we try to do is answer questions. Come on down and join us. I'm looking forward to answering your questions on Alive Again. Every week only on PetLifeRadio.com. PetLifeRadio.com Did you hear that? Our commercials have mysteriously disappeared. Paranormal Pets is back with our haunted host, our ghost host, Brandy Stark. And welcome back to Paranormal Pets. So here is our last entry, and this is not going to be quite as long as the other. We are going to just talk about an excerpt of the entry on the harvest festivals and rituals from the Middle Ages. So, okay, this is actually by Martin W. Walsh. And as I said, we're just looking at part of his entry on page 196 of the same text. The onset of winter was also a time for particular attention to domestic animals. In Bavaria, the feast of the animal patron, St. Leonard, November 6th, marks the last processional riding of the year and a blessing of the horses against the winter season. Elaborate uh, decoration of herd animals is common in alpine regions in the earlier events of the cow dances, which brought the stock down from their high summer pasture. Some herd animals were so honored in the harvest season, but others were subject to blood sports and conjunction with their slaughter for meat, particularly in November, known as the blood or slaughter month in all Germanic languages. Goose pulling involved riding under a suspended goose with the intent of pulling off its head. Ooh, very brutal. Village-wide bull runnings were not confined to the Iberian Peninsula. In the Middle Ages, they could be found as far north as Lincolnshire. From early Norman London to late medieval Wurzburg, combats between wild boars were also common holiday fare during the late harvest season. And do remember that, of course, animal rights did not even develop, I believe, in the United States until the 1920s or beyond. I think early development and uh, I want to say that there were additional developments in the 50s, 70s, and 90s. So it's unfortunate, but anyhow. Martin Miss, November 11th, was the final harvest festival. Interim festum St. Michaelis et St. Martini veniet cum toto ac pleno deteno. Wow, sorry. Uh, Between the feasts of St. Michael and St. Martin, they sing the harvest home, reads a medieval record from Headington and Oxfordshire. In many parts of Europe that day, signaled the slaughtering of animals that were not to be kept over the winter. It was also a common date for broaching the new wine in France and Central Europe. The surplus meat and perishable innards in the new wine afforded another opportunity for conspicuous feasting. The Martinmas carouse, particularly in the German-speaking areas, laid more emphasis on verbal arts, drinking songs, comic tales, and so on than did earlier harvest feasts. In this respect, it was more like a winter revel. As with the poor souls of November 2nd, the famous icon of the charity of St. Martin, in which St. Martin splits his cloak to share it with a naked beggar, serves to underscore obligations downward to the underprivileged at an onset of winter, especially the obligations to share harvest and slaughter largesse. Since, uh, <coughs> since, Uh, Medieval times, Martin's feast also marked the beginning of the penitential season of Advent. Martin must thus served as a kind of brief carnival to this lesser Lent. So there you go. Perhaps more about the Middle Ages than you wish to know as well. 
Uh, so at this point, I am going to end this particular episode. I hope you find it somewhat interesting. I know sometimes academics and such uh, language can be a little dry, but there's so much that we can learn from the past, either not to repeat it or perhaps how similar we are to it, that I think it's kind of worth sharing. Now, there are some more happily entertaining or even more frightening ghost tale entries that we'll talk about perhaps in our next episode. But until then, I want to wish you and yours who might be hearing this a very happy holiday season. If you're listening to this after the holiday season, I hope you are having a wonderful day. If you are interested in submitting stories, um, please email me or uh, which you can actually do through the site, or you are also welcome to check out the Spirits of St. Petersburg, spiritsofstpetersburg.com, or Google Spirits of St. Petersburg, where there are links to other animal-based ghost websites, including the Shadow Animals page, the Paranormal Pugs page, uh, Paranormal Rodents page, uh, my personal ghost page, and then uh, the Spirits page actually compiles most of the Spirits of St. Petersburg investigations. Once again, with the encroaching holiday season, I encourage you to consider adopting. I'm actually very pleased to say that my pet household has expanded slightly. Last month, I went to the SPCA, one of my rat colonies, my little girl colony, in which it's only girls and they're not used for breeding. The boys live completely separately because no babies at this household, not allowed. So... I had a girl colony of about five and over the years they have declined and I was down to two. And the issue that I have is that girls tend to be very social and when you get down to two, if one dies, that leaves one in a solitary condition. So I have been looking for some female rats and I I prefer not to buy them because unfortunately rats are seen as a commodity and I don't think that they're always treated as well as they should be, particularly as a pet. So by golly, I looked at the SPCA website down here in St. Petersburg. Uh, The SPCA is a little bit further north. I think it's up in Clearwater, Largo area. And they didn't have any rats the first time I looked, but they had a female hedgehog. And so I resisted because I really wanted female rats. And about two or three weeks later, I looked again and they had three little girl rats that had been put into the SPCA, but the hedgehog was still there. So I talked to my mother who's supposed to talk me out of this stuff, but she goes with me when I have to pick up a pet. And um, we got up there and she's like, you're taking the hedgehog. (laughs) So I have three new little girl rats, Jasmine, Natty, and Kylie to go in with Kali, who uh, was also literally handed to me at a pet store. This uh, young woman had bought her, felt like she was lonely and that this woman couldn't take care of her and was going to give it back to the pet store. And the pet store did not take back animals. And this was a major chain. This is one that will sell small animals, but does not sell larger animals. So it's, it's a major brand chain. And I told her that I would take her. So I ended up with Kali, and then I have TT, who I rescued from a feeder bin. She was the only little girl in there with all boys, and thank God it was before she was fertile. So I now have my three rescued SPCA rats, and I now also have Hildegard the Hedgehog. Her name was Hedgie, but that's a terrible name for a hedgehog. So because I love my ancients and my middle ages, I named her Hildegard for Hildegard of Bingham because when you look at her, she kind of looks like a nun. Subsequently, my mother found a seven-month-old male hedgehog who was also without a home, and she insisted that I would provide a decent home for him. 
And so I now also have Desiderius Erasmus, um, a, an albino blonde hedgehog who, yes, lives in his own cage because hedgehogs are solitary creatures and that rule about no babies, right? And that would also be my pumpkin pie going off in the background. The bugs are starting to wake up, so I guess at this point, I had better end this episode. Have a wonderful, 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 and hauntingly beautiful holiday season. Pet Life Radio presents Paranormal Pets, where you can always expect the unexpected. Each week we'll discuss all aspects of weird or spiritual animal encounters, ghosts, totems, psychic animals, animal souls, animal angels, and animals in religion, with a little cryptozoology thrown in. Step into the supernatural world of pets every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs>